Ladies and gentlemen, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you're joining us from. Thank you for tuning in. This is the Rooted Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Panetta. We are in Salem, Oregon, in studio today. Well, I'm just in studio. We're still on lockdown, so just me. All of our guests are joining us virtually. Some of them have to anyways, because they live far away. But I'm happy to be here. Per tradition, I usually share what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it, why we have the Rooted Leadership Podcast and so on. It's connected to a leadership institute that we started a couple of years ago. That leadership institute is called Groundwork. And we set out to raise the tide of leadership in our community to ensure and do our part to contribute to sustainable and impactful leaders for many years to come. So that's what we're up to. That's why we're doing it. We believe in an institute and calling ourselves an institute because we want to gather as much knowledge and information as we can. Hence these podcasts, it was a no-brainer. Hey, if we want to we want to gather information and knowledge and then share it with our community, what better way to do that than a podcast? So that's kind of the origin story of how we got here and why it is that we're doing what we're doing. We've had so many wonderful guests on our show, community members uh, from here locally in Salem and other leaders from the outside. And it's been a phenomenal experience. We've learned so much from them and we continue to learn with each guest. Today, we have a leader from the outside. He has been a friend of mine for a few years now. I met him when I worked at the Arbinger Institute, and his name is Chip Huth. Uh, and my introduction of him will no, will not do it justice at all. Chip is involved in so many different things. Uh, you know, he's a longtime uh, police officer, very various different roles in Kansas City. Um, he's at the top right now uh, in terms of ranking and role uh, in the Kansas City PD. And just a phenomenal person, and like I said, just involved in so many things throughout um, the country, uh, not just there in Kansas City. So I'll let him share a little bit about that before I get him on here. He'll be joining us Zoom, and again, I know that you listeners can't see us, which is probably a good thing. I'm not that great to look at, so instead you get to hear my voice. So give me one second, I will get Chip on Zoom right away and have him join the show. All right. So I have Chip here, uh, joined us on Zoom. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah. Uh, so Chip, I think when I first met you, well, I first heard about you a few years before I met you. I was actually still in college when I first heard about you. And uh, it's because I was doing some Arbinger work um, at the university I was at. And I watched the, you know, one of the, I think it was one of Arbinger's first case study videos about the case, the SWAT, your, your former SWAT uh, unit. And so that's when I first heard about you. And then while I was still in school, I went and, and was part of, uh, you know, the Peace Players Project many, a few years ago back um, in, in Kansas City, worked with Skip and, and a few others um, with the, the PAL unit out there. And you never, I don't think you, you came when I was there, but you know, I, I learned a little bit more about you when, when I was there just talking with some other individuals. 
Um, and then finally, I met you when I was employed at Arbinger. You came to uh, to our office for for something, and and I remember when I first met you in the in the conference room. Uh, there, you the first thing you did was crack a joke, um, <laughs> and immediately I was comfortable with you. So, uh, and I've always been comfortable with the, with you since then. So, I've appreciated um, you know uh, knowing you and 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 learning from you. So, I I gave an intro to briefly about who you are and what you do, but I by no means did it justice. So if you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners who you are, what you do, um, you know, what got you here and just kind of take it from there. Okay. Well, so I guess when people say who you are, it's different than what you do. So I'll start with who I am. Who I am is a husband to Shelly and a father to Chris and Brandon and a stepfather to Connor. Um, you know, that's a big, big part of my life. Um, my family, they mean a lot to me. And I think they're probably a better characterization of who I am. Uh, and then what I do, uh, I am a full-time member of the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. I currently serve as a, as a commander there. I moved into the strategic leadership realm in December 14. Prior to that, I'd spent 22 and a half years at the tactical level, mostly in the SWAT teams, both as a member and a leader. Um, I had the privilege of leading an internationally recognized team for over a decade. Um, that team is legendary, not because of me and my leadership, but because of the content of the character of the men. And they were all men at the time that populated that team. Mm -hmm. um, they still they still continue to exceed expectations in their work, even though I'm, I'm gone. Two leaders past me now. Um, but I love that. And my time here on the PD has been, been wonderful. Kansas city is a great community. Um, it's by far, uh, represents the place that I lived the longest in my life. As I said, 30 years now here. And, um, so aside from that, another passion is my work with the Arbinger Institute. It's where you and I first met, as you mentioned. Um, everyone listening is probably familiar with Arbinger, internationally recognized leaders in the conflict transformation space. Uh, Arbinger's, that, that's an extended family to me. That's much more than a company. Mm -hmm. And I serve there as a senior consultant, um, providing you know, keynotes and support for training. And sometimes I'll dip my toe in the curriculum space with them a little bit um, when they'll tolerate me. So Arbinger is a big part of that. And then um, I have my own consulting business. Um, and I train law enforcement, military, um, corporate security and corrections, uh, use of force related stuff, leadership stuff, a lot of that. Um, I don't do any marketing there. That's just kind of word of mouth. Yeah. So, um, and then the thing I'm probably most excited about lately is I'm just starting a new venture with a partner, Tanner Brock, we're doing a podcast, uh, Changing Discourse. And Changing Discourse is something we just started up. We're, we just recorded our seventh episode. And I'm really excited about that. I assumed naively that podcasting was just as easy as having a conversation with people. But <laughs> I know I'm speaking to the choir when I tell you there's much more that goes into it than that, right? Yeah. Um, so, but that's that's been really exciting. We're really having fun with that. And that's kind of me in a nutshell, man. I appreciate it. Um, and I'm sure we'll, we'll learn a lot more about you as we keep going, but, 
I, I mentioned, you know, in, in the intro before you joined that you're involved in quite a bit and uh, you definitely spoke to that um, as you introduced yourself more. But, uh, you know, the one of the, you talk about the podcast, sorry, I'm adjusting my, my volume right now. Uh, when you talk about the podcast you started, I was, I was looking and I started to listen to, I think it was your uh, fourth episode, um, Lessons Learned from, I can't remember the name, but an MMA fighter. Yeah. The Eric Nixick. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He's actually an, he's actually Randy Couture's, uh, gym manager and he's okay. a trainer. He trains Bellator and, uh, and UFC fighters. Okay. So yeah, Eric Nixick. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I remember, you know, one of the first things you and I spoke about when we first met was, was mixed martial arts. Cause you know, you, you, you enjoy that. And, and I, I grew up boxing and kickboxing as well. So we kind of had that, that in common. So it's kind of fun. That was the, one of the first episodes that caught my eye when I when I looked on yeah. your on your guys' uh, page there. So that's pretty pretty cool. Well, and I have to be completely transparent with your listeners. You know, I I too, uh, you know, I was uh, I was kind of a street fighter as a kid. I was a rough, violent kid. You know, all kinds of all kinds of issues and challenges with me. I think I was arrested twice before I was sixteen for for fighting. But um, I I gravitated toward kickboxing, and then when I got too old for that, judo. Uh, what I mean by too old is getting punched in the face is <laughs> it gets, it gets old quick. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and, but, but look, I mean, when you say MMA, I, I never really got into to the MMA by the time that became really big, I was car, kind of already aging out of mm -hmm. the, of the actual, you know, full contact fighting space. So I've been involved with it peripherally, but I wouldn't claim to be any kind of an expert in MMA, right? I mean, I, I knew in, in kickboxing, I knew you couldn't take me down. So that was something I wasn't worried. I wasn't worried about that. Yeah. I knew you couldn't kick me below the waist. Mm -hmm. wasn't worried about it. Um, same thing in judo. I knew you weren't going to punch me. Uh, at least if I did, I knew you were getting disqualified, right? So I wasn't really guarding against that. The MMA is a whole new world. I mean, it's, it's you know, I mean, it's not new anymore, but I mean, to to engage in that type of practice, I think, is so impressive. Yeah. It's evolved so much, right? It's meant so much to competitive, uh, we'll call it martial arts, just colloquially. It's not truly martial in the sense that that word means military, but, yeah. um, you know, you know, I mean, it's, it just meant so much for, for that sport, you know, that competition aspect of, of the martial arts. Um, I'm just very impressed with it, but I, I'm always clarifying that only because I, I have so much respect for the people that are engaged at that level in MMA in the MMA, I would never claim to be at that level. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I, I just wouldn't claim to be there. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm right there with you. I have a high respect for it and enjoy uh, watching it. And, and uh, you know, I, I know enough about uh, boxing that I could, I could teach someone the basics and I've had fun with my, uh, with my kids um, teaching them, uh, you know, how to throw, how to throw a punch, how to throw a jab, a hook, you know, an uppercut and, and, and how to kind of move your body and, and whatnot. And my, my daughter, she's, she's six and she's picking it up pretty quickly. But my son, he's, you know, he's almost four and, you know, my wife and I are convinced he's, he's some sort of a, I don't know, a prodigy. I mean, the first time he threw on some gloves, I found some little gloves, these little boxing gloves at uh, Ross and man, I put up one of the pads and I, you know, I, I was telling him before what a one, two is, you know, jab, jab, you know, just give me a one, two, Mateo. And, uh, man, he punched that thing, uh, was so, so straight, so clean. Uh, and 
immediately caught on to the to the numbers so i can like i can throw a combo out to him now one one two four and he'll do it and uh, he can hit that thing i mean he hits it harder than his older sister and he's only four years old so i'll keep you know i'll keep playing i make it fun for him and see where see where it'll take him but um yeah you you mentioned eric uh, you know eric makes like his son Knox also right around the same age a little bit younger than than mateo it sounds like but same thing man it just looks like you know when you see him working the focus mitts yeah. on Instagram and all that. He looks like he might be a natural. So, Hey, Mateo though. Yeah. Like, I love that name. What, what's, what's in a name there? What, yeah. what, what is that about? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks for asking. Um, so all of our kids, we have three, Eva, Mateo and Tala, um, all are, you know, names that originate from the Philippines. Um, uh, some of, obviously some of them are very Spanish, um, uh, Eva meaning Eve and Mateo is, is Matthew. And then our, our youngest daughter, her name is Tala, which means star. Um, so, you know, it's just part of, uh, like we were talking about before we started to record, uh, the Filipino heritage that I have from my father, he was born and raised there, you know, something important to me. So, uh, my wife loves the culture as well. Mm. And so, um, you know, one thing we decided when we were naming our kids is we wanted them to you know, to feel connected to it, um, even through their names. And so, um, that's kind of was the inspiration behind, behind why we chose their names. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, those are just beautiful names, man. I mean, I think, you know, naming a child is it's such an important decision Yeah. and, um, you know, I, I just think those are incredibly powerful names. So good, good on you guys. Oh, I appreciate it. And I told you once before, obviously, you know, my name's Chris, like your son, but my, my older brother, his name's Brandon. <laughs> so, yeah, and you know my my sons are Chris and Brandon, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So you you chose yeah, some, that, you chose some great names too. <laughs> yeah, well, you know Chris, you, you know the the etymology with Christopher, yeah, um, bearer of Christ, right? Yeah, bearer of Christ. I mean, you know, it's, it's such a cool story, um, you know. And for the listeners that might not know it, it's and I'm just off the, off the top of my head here. Um, Reprobus, 14th century Lycian giant, hmm. and the legend is that he would uh, he would carry people across a river that had no bridge, no crossing for money. And the legend is that he carried baby Jesus across the river and he didn't charge hmm. Mary and Joseph. That's a legend, right? Okay. He just carried him. Yeah, and yeah. if you look at that, that St. Christopher medal, it has a very large man with a walking stick with uh, an image of the baby Jesus on his shoulders. And, you know, again, Christopher bearer of Christ, yeah. you know, he who bears Christ. And I, I just thought I'm not, as you know, I'm not particularly religious in the classical sense. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, I hate saying this, I guess I'm a spiritual person. I'm certainly a philosopher and yeah. part of that has led me to study theology a bit. Um, uh, but I will tell you that's, that, that just, it just meant a lot to me, the whole idea of, of that name and the service aspect of it, right. And the selflessness and all those other things that go into this idea that, you know, you're literally carrying the fate of humanity in your hands, right? I mean, that, that's, I mean, if you think about the power behind that image of, of Reprobus, yeah. as he was formerly known. So anyway, the name's fascinating to me and um, I, I think it's pretty cool. Well, now I, now I feel like I'm not living up to my name at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, that's why I'm named Chip. You know, the bar is set very, very low with Chip. You don't have to do a whole lot. Uh, well, I, you know, I, I am a man of faith and a man of God, so I resonate with that deeply and, and, uh, I need to, I need to do a better job of, of living up to it. That's for sure. So thank, thank, thanks for sharing that. I, I knew, you know, the, 
the basic meaning of it, but I didn't know that, uh, that legend uh, as you, as you shared. So. Yeah. Well, and then I'm sharing it from memory, of course, as I do. Uh, one thing that Tanner and I strive to do in our podcast, and I, I, I try to do it when I appear on other podcasts, I, just, I want to be completely authentic. So, yeah. you know, if you're, if you're videoing me as you're looking at me now on video, I don't need notes or, you know, I'm not, I'm just, I'm going off of what I'm thinking in the moment. So I always tell listeners, Hey, be, feel free to Google fact check me. And <laughs> you know, I, I don't get everything right. No one does. And I'm perfectly okay with that, but that's, that's how I choose to remember it. Right. Yeah, no, no, I, I appreciate your authenticity. In fact, I remember, uh, you know, uh, you spoke at uh, the Arbinger Institute Summit a few years ago. You're the final speaker. And and right before you went up, you're actually sitting next to uh, me and one of our other colleagues at the time, Kasha, in the very back row, just cracking jokes. And you were up five minutes later, you had no notes. And I'm like, Chip, don't you have notes? I mean, he's all, no, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm just going to go up there and, and be present with people. And, and I, I admire that. You know, uh, you, yeah, you. you know where that, you know where that comes from, Chris. Huh. So, so first of all, I, I love Kasha. So if she's listening you, and if, if you see her before I do tell her, I said, uh, she I, was, I love you. Some well, she works with me now. So she was a bit jealous that, you know, that I was yeah. going to, be able to talk to you today. <laughs> she's one of the coolest people on the planet. That's all I get to say about Kasha. She's awesome. Yeah, she's um, where that comes from is, so I did a Ted talk back in 14, I think, and I really tanked it, man. Yeah. I remember you had, um, I mean, you told me about that. You had the cards and I had the cards. Well, so what had happened see, was you couldn't see people out there. No, yeah. yeah. No, nobody knows the story. I mean, I'm, I go up there thinking Ted talk, I'm just going to go up there and talk to a bunch of people. Right. I do that all the time. It's no problem. And that's not what it was. It was theater. And you know, like you said, the lights in my face, I couldn't see the crowd. And yeah. so I kind of panicked and wrote down some stuff in the green room on some note cards and I'd never use note cards. And that went, frantically wrong when I got them out of order, but I was super nervous. And what I realized was after that talk, the problem with that talk was I was focused on me. Yeah. I was focused on looking good as a presenter. I wasn't thinking about the audience. I wasn't thinking about this important message I was trying to convey. I was thinking about looking good. Yeah. And because of, I was focused completely on myself. I totally it was out of my element. I couldn't, I couldn't communicate the way I wanted to. And I really regret you know, I wish I could have that one back. So when I'm sitting there with you and Kasha, you know, what I learned from that lesson is you throw yourself on the audience and you trust them to catch you. Yeah. You know, you just go up there and you just share your story. It's your story, right? Mm -hmm. They're here to hear it, share it. And don't, don't be worried so much about missteps or, you know, saying the wrong thing or, you know, maybe having to even start over. Uh, you know, I think everybody to some degree is a little bit wary of speaking to a crowd of people. Yeah. I just, it goes against our natural instinct, right? We're, we don't like to oppose the group. We like to be included in the group. Yeah. We don't like to be excluded, right? So when we're opposing the group, uh, standing there risking not being accepted for what we're saying, you know, I think part of our, the primal part of our brain, right? Thinks, oh my gosh, if I mess this up, I'm going to get, you know, excommunicated. Yeah. You know, no one's going to be my friend. No one's going to talk to me. And then the very primal part of my brain says that means I can't hunt with anyone and I won't be able to eat, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, so, you know, you just got to kind of let that go. So that's where that came from. I, I just was like, I'm, some people are going to like what I have to say. Some people aren't going to appreciate it as much. And, you know, the onus is on me just to be genuine and, and, you know, speak from the heart as it were. Yeah. Well, no, I, I mean, I, like I said, I appreciate that about you because even then you were, you're being authentic with, with me and Kasha in the moment. And then minutes later you were be you were able to be authentic with with the group and and you know that was one of my uh uh you know of all the the speeches we've heard over the 
the past few years at those uh, Arbinger summits, that was still one of my one of my one of my most memorable. In fact, now that we're on the topic, there was there's a couple of things that you said in there that while we have you, I want to get your thoughts on because I quote you all the time, and I know I, mm-hmm. I know I jokingly shared that uh, before we started recording today, but one thing that you said, and maybe maybe you're maybe you will remember you saying this, maybe you won't, but um, I share it all the time with the leaders that we we work with. Um, and this is again, my memory. So I might not have it word for word here verbatim, but you said, you know, our people, so speaking as a leader, our people will, will forgive us when we're not being the, the person or the leader that we should be, but they have a hard time forgiving us when we're not being the leader we told them we would be. Um, and I, I love that, you know, and it usually comes up when we're talking about accountability and working through you know, what accountability really means as a leader, that it's not so much holding people accountable. That's the part of what accountability means as a leader, but mostly it's, are you willing to, to be the change first? Um, and so that, that, that quote, you know, that, that chip quote that I have usually comes to mind when, when I'm in those dialogues with those conversations with folks, but I wanted to get your thoughts, you know, on, on that. I think it'd be really fun for our listeners to kind of hear that since I quote you so much on it. Yeah. Well, I mean, a couple of thoughts. First of all, yeah, you, you pretty much nailed it. I mean, the, the idea, as you said, is that people will forgive you uh, very quickly for not being the leader that they think you should be, but they won't forgive you for not being the leader you say you are. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the, that's the idea. Right. And so first off, I have to tell everyone listening, I, I have very few original ideas. Um, you know, I have read, studied, listened. The only gift I have is an insane curiosity. Mm. And so most of what I've learned, including that, by the way, that little sentiment, uh, I don't know how it was expressed to me, if it was expressed probably more eloquently, I imagine. Um, but I learned that somewhere. I mean, the leader, a lot of the thing about leadership is leadership is about influence. And in order to be effective as an influencer, you must be willing to be influenced. Yeah. Yeah. There's a law of reciprocity there, you know, and I've been influenced by a lot of great leaders, Chris. I have had an opportunity to, to share meals and discussions and, you know, so many hours with some of the world's best leaders. And I've tried to just soak up as much knowledge as I could from them. Uh, Many of the leaders that I've learned from are are represented in the books you see behind me. I mean, I, you know, some leaders that I've learned from are are long dead and gone. You know, there, there are people who have memorialize their thoughts and ideas and, uh, and strategies and and into books. And I've taken advantage of that. Right. Um, so that idea, it's, it's a powerful idea, but again, it's, it's, I learned it somewhere. I just couldn't tell you where, but I find it to be very true. You have to be very careful when you're, um, presenting yourself to folks. Like if you come in and then when you mentioned the word authenticity a while ago, people are always asking me, you know, is that an important thing in leadership? And what does it even mean? Like if you're authentically a jerk, you know, you know, should, should you just be a jerk? <laughs> yeah. You know, mm-hmm. no, no, you should, you should be very, very honest with yourself that you have some areas that you are struggling in and yeah. those areas compromise your ability to lead effectively. That's what you should be. That's authentic is being able to admit that, right. I need to improve here. But this idea is if I come in and I tell you I'm this caring leader or, you know, um, you know, I, 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 I present myself as being this, this real thoughtful person who cares a lot about uh, including 
all of the people that are impacted by the decisions I make in the decision-making process. Like that's how I present myself, but then I do the opposite. People have no tolerance for that. Yeah. You know, they, they just have no tolerance for that. They, you know, they feel slighted. They recognize the hypocrisy and to some degree, we're all, you know, we're all hypocritical to some degree, but we want to, as much as we can, close the gap between the things we say and the things we do. Yeah. You have to be very, very careful what you say, right? You want to know what's important to somebody. Don't listen to what they say. Watch what they do. Mm. And so when we're out there telling folks, hey, this is my leadership style. This is my leadership philosophy. This is what matters to me. If you're not living that out, yeah, uh, I'm telling you right now, people will real quick, they'll be really quick to start disregarding everything you say. Yeah. It'll just be tainted, right? So yeah, there's a lot packed into that to that statement. I don't remember the context in which I brought it up, but I'm glad to see that that you benefited from it. Yeah, no, I think I think about it it often and you know, to piggyback on what you just said, you know, when when we're not being our our best and you know, at Arbinger, I feel like we always had conversations uh, about this, but when when we're when we're not our best, it's not just us that knows it. I mean, everybody else knows it as well. And so being accountable is just getting out in front of that and, and, uh, you know, doing something about it, um, fixing it. In fact, I was, um, I was talking to, uh, some community leaders in a County in Washington just a couple days ago. And, um, uh, they got connect, we got connected through Arbinger. And so they kind of found out that, you know, here in Salem, we, we've been spreading outward mindset like crazy. And, uh, you know, and we have, you know, well over 3000 plus people have been exposed to that formal training. And, and it's just, it's just part of community conversations now. And it's been really remarkable to see, you know, how it's all panned out. But I was sharing with these community leaders, they're asking, you know, how can you, you know, how to, how to do it and, and what they've noticed about, you know, the advocates or the, the evangelists of, of outward mindset, you know, here and, and, um, one of them asked the question, uh, you know, about, well, what about people that, you know, don't live the material, you know, do they, does that, does that get in the way of, of the, the, the progress uh, that you're seeing? And, and I said, well, you know, for the most part, uh, no, because there hasn't been a lot of folks like that, but I, you know, I, I said, look, the, the difference between, and we were using, you know, Arbinger's terminology of outward and inward mindset. I said, look, the difference between um, a leader that's inward and a leader that's outward is this, that the inward leader makes mistakes and never admits it and blames other people for it and tries to run from it. The leader that's outward still makes those very mistakes. They just are owning it. <laughs> um, uh, there's no difference between the two, you know? Um, I think, you know, personally, philosophically, I think that the move to an outward mindset is really and outward mindset is ultimately just being alive to how inward uh, we can be. And so what that, that uh, you know, what you said in that uh, speech reminds me of that. You know, it just reminds me of a leader that is, have a, has a heightened sense of not just self-awareness, but accountability to, to themselves. Um, and that, that becomes contagious, as you well, well know. Um, people learn accountability from that more than, you know, a leader sitting them down and holding them accountable for something. So th- those are the things that, uh, that that reminds me of um, when, I, when I go on a tangent with it. Uh, so I want to get into um, 
I think that, you know, your story, you shared about who you are and what you do, but kind of what got you here to the point of, you know, I, you know, and I know because I, I know you and, and many people in the Arbinger world know this about you, you know, that the change that you, you went through. Um, but you know, what, what caused you to want to get into law enforcement? Um, how has that journey been? Um, for you and the changes that you've seen within yourself over the, the over the years to where, um, you know, you, you are able to speak all over now, share your story to where you're starting a podcast on, on changing discourse. I mean, what, I know that's a loaded question, but would love to hear kind of what got, you know, chip to this point, um, and the changes you've seen in yourself as a person, as a leader over that period of time. Yeah, no, there's certainly a lot there, but I mean, I guess going back to the first part of your question, why law enforcement? Um, again, many people listening will probably know that you know, I've been quite transparent about my past, my history. Um, you know, I grew up, my, my family's, I'm, I'm always finding new family members because my dad, um, he was a rolling stone, as they say, but he was also a clinical psychopath and a career criminal and he drug us around the country and left us homeless. And we were abused in all the classical ways. You know, everyone's heard the stories. Um, and, you know, my mom suffered from mental illness and very easily manipulated. And we were very vulnerable as young children in, in many, many circumstances. And I can remember the police showing up on many occasions and the police being kind of our saviors. And, and I know the feelings about the police these days seem to be mixed a bit. Um, if you listen to the people on the fringe that have an amplified message because of social media and the complexity of communication these days, you would think that everybody hates the police. I don't think that's true at all. But, but for me, my experience with the police in the seventies was, you know, they were here to help. They were protectors and they protected us from my dad and from you know, they, they took us off the street when it was cold and took us to missions or Salvation Armies. I've slept in more than one police station lobby um, as a young kid. And so for me, I always knew what I wanted to do. Mm. You know, I wanted to become formidable, not be a vulnerable little kid. I wanted to be strong so that I could offer that protection to people. I wanted to be that protector. Yeah. And that's how I saw the police do it. Right. So for me, there was never a question. I was going to be a police officer. The question was only, you know, how was how was I going to get there? Uh, because of course I had some setbacks with, you know, I had big time anger issues. Um, I was violent, uh, a lot of insecurity and, you know, a lot of trouble in school when it comes to fights and things like that. And uh, I think I mentioned before, you know, I was in trouble as a juvenile for, for being violent. And, you know, so there were some, uh, some certain, some obstacles, but in my mind, right. I didn't see that as uh, eventually that was all heading in the same path. I was going to be in law enforcement. And, you know, I did realize, you know, I mean, it is, I went in the military at 17 because they let me be a cop, you know, as a young man, I didn't have to wait till I was 21, you know, in the military, you know, you can go in at 17 with your parent's signature, um, on a form. And that's what I did. And, and I went into the military police and, did that until I was old enough to be a police officer in the civilian world mm -hmm. and been doing that ever since. And, you know, for me, it was always, that was a clear path for me. And that journey has been real inter interesting because of course, when I became a cop in 1991, 
a civilian cop. Um, my idea about policing was kind of, I mean, it was informed a lot by allegory, even though I'd been an MP, the culture in the military is so different. And what I did as an MP was actually end up, it ended up not being all a lot of law enforcement ended up doing some other interesting things. But, um, you know, my idea about law enforcement then was like, there's good guys, there's bad guys. Yeah. And I'm a good guy. I got to catch the bad guy. And, and that's kind of it. Right. I didn't understand the service piece. I didn't understand the fact that, you know, people in a constitutional Republic should have a voice in how they're policed. It's a real partnership. I know that sounds trite, but you have to partner with the people that you're serving. Um, ultimately you're more of a facilitator of public safety, right? You're not just coming in and, and making people safe. You're helping them yeah. create a safe environment. And so I didn't understand any of that. Right. I just thought, well, it's car chases and, you know, maybe it's a gunfight now and then maybe it's, you know, you know, tackling people. And I mean, I didn't, I didn't get it. Right. So coming in, I was pretty naive and just the more I interacted with people, especially in a city like Kansas city, which has a very, you know, it's got a very violent culture. A part of it is very, very violent. You know, our, our homicide rate is embarrassingly high. And it was, it's been that way for most of my career with some dips um, it's certainly that way right now. I think we're in the process of setting a record this year for homicides, um, wow. which is not a record you want to have. Yeah. Um, but I did learn that by interacting with people, you know, as a police officer, people are people, man. I mean, you know, placed in the same circumstances, I might find myself doing some of the same things, you know, yeah. I, it's been so long, Chris, since I've been hungry, it's been so long since I've been hungry, unless I was fasting, you know, willingly. It's been so long since I've really been hungry. I don't remember it. And, and, you know, would it be reasonable for me starving on the street to think that stealing some food from the store is a good idea? Uh, yeah, man, I could see myself being, I could see myself getting there. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean that I condone theft, but it does mean I can understand that person's position a little better and I can show up with them differently because of that understanding, more compassion, mm -hmm. less judgment. Um, so that was part of my transition, but ultimately what happened for me, as you know, is, is my introduction to Arbinger's work at a point in my life where I was failing on all fronts. I was failing as a father. I was failing as a husband. I was failing as a leader. Um, I stumbled upon Arbinger's work and it just changed my life. It completely opened my eyes to the problems that I was creating for other people. Um, you know, I had been, you know, as you mentioned before, I'd been the kind of guy that just blamed everyone for my problems and my issues, my challenges. I always thought if my wife would be more loving, I'd have a better marriage. If my kids would be more obedient, I'd be a better dad. If my people at work would listen to me when I told them what to do, I'd be a better leader. Yeah. Like all of my faults were attributed to external causes. And I just couldn't get out of that rut, out of that mindset. Um, and Arbinger, it was just the way they introduced the concept. It was so non-threatening. It was, it was so much like they, they just helped me discover this in myself rather than pointing a finger at me and saying, Hey dude, you're in the box. It was like, Hey, look here, chip, look at the story of this person who had these challenges. And that invited me to see the similarities between me and that person, that fictitious person who's actually, <laughs> it's actually only fictitious in the story. He's a representation of all of us. Yeah. You know, as you read through that story, right. In, the, in, in leadership and self-deception, that Lou, right? The mm -hmm. character. And um, yeah, so that, that just changed things for me. And, and in the course of that, we changed. I happened to be leading a SWAT team that was really troubled. We implemented Arbinger principles. We completely did a 180. We became known for being able to do really tough kinetic work, but in a way that actually built rapport. 
and, and fostered trust. Very counterintuitive stuff, kicking in doors and breaking and raking windows and throwing flashbangs and those type of things. But at the same time, building relationship with the people we were serving, unheard of. Uh, I certainly wouldn't have thought it was possible, but because of the Arbinger principles we leveraged, it was possible. And moving from there, um, after Ferguson happened, uh, I, I thought I'd be in the SWAT team forever. I thought I would just lead until the end of my career. But after Ferguson, Missouri happened, I thought I need to, I need to step up. I'd been very critical of strategic leaders. I thought they were to blame for Ferguson. I thought the shooting was not the uh, flashpoint for what happened in Ferguson. I thought what had happened was, well, that may have been the flashpoint, but, but the kindling was the years of neglect. Hmm. You know, the years uh, that the police department there uh, and in some of the surrounding areas had neglected the community. Um, they just policed objects, not people. Yeah. And, and that was what set it all up. And then when the shooting happened, um, that just, that just set everything on fire. That just, that just created this, this out of control situation. So I, I really blame the strategic level leaders, the people who had were responsible for creating the culture of the department. Well, I blame them. <laughs> and, you know, as I blamed them out loud, I realized that as a practicing stoic, there was no way I could just point my finger at these leaders as I sat back comfortably leading a world-class team yeah. at the tactical level. I had to jump in and throw my hat in the ring and I did. And I've promoted rather rapidly. And, and now I'm a major on the PD and leading an amazing team of communication professionals, uh, technicians, uh, almost all non-sworn people. Um, my first inside cat job, I've always been an outside cat. This is my first inside cat job. And it's been, it's been quite a, quite an adventure. So I guess that from, from soup to nuts, as my wife hates, hates me to say, because she doesn't understand the idiom, I don't think. But uh, she, she, It's funny, she's seven years younger than me, but it's just so funny the difference seven years can make, you know? I was talking to a group of eighth graders um, with her. We were doing a co-presentation, kind of like a, you know, a parent's day or something at school, right? You yeah. come talk about your profession. We were both in uniform and I, and I said soup to nuts and, and, and the kids started giggling and the teacher was giggling. Teacher's probably like 22. And, and my wife is just looking at me with the shock look on her face. Like <laughs> what are you, talking? You, know, you can't say soup to nuts <laughs> in front of a bunch of pre-adolescents, <laughs> you know, I, it, of course it's lost on me. Right. I'm thinking, you know, right. I'm, I'm, I'm clearly old. Um, but yeah, but as she would, as she would cringe at, uh, that's pretty much my journey as it were from, as, as she likes to say, beginning to end. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a good, uh, synopsis. And there's a lot, you know, obviously a lot more in there and, and you're a, a key character in, in Arbinger's book, uh, the outward mindset. Um, and obviously a lot of their content has you in there. So, uh, their training materials, some of their videos. So I encourage any listeners who don't know some of your story. It's it's one that is easily um, relatable to, uh, even though I've never been a you know police officer, never been a SWAT team member. Um, you know, hearing your stories and and watching those, I I can see myself in those in those examples, and it inspires me to want to change and be different. So I I would invite anybody to to read. You know. Uh, uh, the outward mindset, the book, um, and, uh, you know, look, look, look for some of those videos cause they, they're, they're inspiring. 
Uh, well, a couple things I, I want to highlight um, that resonated with me with you kind of giving that synopsis of, of how you've gotten to where you're at. You know, when you started talking about, um, you know, when you first started policing and, and, and uh, you mentioned, you know, being hungry and, and realizing that, that we are capable of doing those things as well, in this case, committing crime. Um, that you know, it res- resonates with me because you know part of you know part of my journey uh, and and I guess developing my brain uh, how it thinks now was a large a large part of you know what I studied in my undergraduate. Um, I've since received a master's and I'm currently my PhD right now. But you know I went to school with a mutual friend as my you know instructor and and you know mentor and it's Chad Ford. Um, and I think you've recently been on his, his podcast, Dangerous Love, but, uh, you know, he's a professor out in Hawaii and he teaches peace building. And one of the biggest takeaways that I had from peace building, and a lot of people, they hear the word peace building, they think, you know, hold hands and sing Kumbaya. And that was the farthest thing from it. Um, you know, peace building is in a lot of ways, what you've engaged in, it's getting in the thick of conflict and trying to, to transform it, not just manage it, but and resolve it. How can we actually transform it? And that's, that's hard work. But one of the key things in reaching conflict transformation or helping someone reach conflict transformation to me is having that moment that you expressed of seeing other people and realizing that I'm capable of what they're doing or what they have done. And, you know, we would academically, we would study some of the, the world's worst conflict that's happened, genocide, you know, just awful things. And, it's really easy to look at those things and cast judgments and, and even be in disbelief of how could somebody do that. Um, but what we would challenge ourselves in peace building is realizing that we could have done that if we walked their shoes, if we lived their life, if we, you know, uh, uh, experienced things that they experienced. And that's, that's a hard thing. It was a hard thing for me to face, to kind of let go and realize I'm capable of those things. Um, and uh, but it was incredibly transformational for me um, to develop a skill of seeing a situation, especially in conflict, and when I mediate or when I'm working with with leaders or you know even the some of the the family mediation I've done to see what they're going through and see myself in it. Um, even if even if it's something that I believe I would never do, I have to admit that I I I could. And that allows me not to, not what you, it's the same thing that you said. It doesn't excuse if they've done wrong. It doesn't excuse that they need to be accountable and responsible to their, to their actions and their behaviors, but it allows me to see them. Um, and I believe that you can't transform a situation or improve a situation if you don't see the people um, before you. So that, that resonated with me. You know, you know I, I, I got to say something about that, Chris. I mean, I'm just listening to you talk. Um. That's exactly the question you should be asking when you study that type of stuff. Those are all cautionary tales. Yeah. You know, the question you should be asking is not how could they do it, but how might I do it? And, you know, I know that seems so surreal for people to consider, but there's a book uh, that I read. I've read a few books in this genre, but this book was the most recent one I read. It's probably been about a year and a half ago maybe a little longer. It's called Ordinary Men by Christopher Browning. Ordinary Men by Christopher Browning. I, I, it's the story of, um, and I'll probably get this wrong, but I think the 361st Police Battalion, they were a German police battalion, and they were brought into Poland 
after the Nazis had rolled through, they were kind of brought brought in as a cleanup crew to, to, to police what was left. And then also they ended up carrying out some ancillary duties that were pretty horrid. And, um, but the book tracks using historical documents and statements and interviews. It's a very well-researched book, very well put together by Christopher Browning. It just tracks th- these men's descent from quote unquote, ordinary men to mass murderers and, and how they went from, you know, being normal everyday people for whatever the word normal is worth to doing, committing these, these atrocities and doing these things that were just horrible nightmarish. And, you know, it's very telling, right? You know, this idea is that we begin this process of justification. You know, we make the things in our life, the, the things in our lives that are crooked, we can make them straight through this psychological maneuvering. And, and it can apply to eating too much ice cream or not gassing up my wife's car when I think I should. And also mass atrocities. Mm-hmm. It's the difference is in the degree and I, I think the potential lies in all of us. And so it's very powerful what you're saying. I, I mean, I think when we, when we, we, we read about, you know, these, these massacres, we read about the Holocausts, you know, we read about, you know, all of these horrible things in history, the things that you spent your, your academic career studying, you know, that's the question we should be asking, you know, what is it in us that might make that possible? I remember, um, I've had a couple kidney stones. I'm a country boy. I'm a farm boy, right? I was transplanted from the city, rescued by my uncle, taken to the farm mm-hmm. at about age 11. And uh, every farm boy in Missouri drinks Mountain Dew at one point or another. <laughs> You're hauling hay. Yeah. You got an ice down cooler of Mountain Dew. I became an addict. And to this day, I still struggle with a Mountain Dew addiction. <laughs> um, I've got Mountain Dew in my beverage cooler. Everywhere I go, uh, people know my deal. I try not to drink a lot of it. I try to be disciplined, but, uh, I still do. I, 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 I imbibe in the do. Uh, but the thing about the do is it comes with consequences. And one of the consequences for me has been kidney stones. And I remember ending up in the hospital the first time I had kidney stones, not knowing what it was. I thought, you know, it was my appendix bursting. I've got this extreme pain and nausea. And, uh, sure enough, it was kidney stones, but they shot me up with Demerol. Now you're talking to a guy who's never sipped alcohol. You know, my, my, my father was an incredible alcoholic and, and it caused me to never, ever want to do drugs or, you know, drink or any of that. I never wanted to be anything like him. Um, so I've never done anything. And this is my first real contact with anything stronger than Novocaine yeah. was this Demerol. And I remember when they hit me with it and the extreme pain that I was in vanished. And I, this feeling came over me, this euphoric feeling came over me that I really can't explain people that have, that have had painkillers uh, or, or certainly people that might've had drug addiction issues can understand what I'm saying. Um, the, the question I had in my head was no longer, why do people do drugs? The question I left the hospital with was why don't people do drugs all the time? Right. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that amazed me is that people aren't just doing drugs every day. That feeling was so, it was so crazy, you know, to have that type of feeling. I realized, I understood in that moment, people get, I used to judge drug addicts so harshly. And I've read a couple other books since then that have really changed my perspective on that. But I used to think, well, they're weak people. They, you know, I tell all my, myself all these stories about, about them that made me feel superior in some way. Uh, and while I've never been addicted to drugs and never had to dip back into the Demerol for, for any reason, knock on wood, um, I can understand it better. I, I know it sounds silly. 
Yeah. But I can understand it better after having that experience. I, I, I can have sympathy. You know, I, I can, I can see them differently. They're, 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 you know, they're much more real to me. And, and I understand much more now as a law enforcement officer, not only are we all, not only are we all capable of becoming addicted to drugs or, or breaking the law or doing, we're all capable of that, right? Psychologically and physically, but we've been attacking it wrong. We've been fighting it wrong. We've been, yeah. you know, the way we've been trying to address this drug issue has been fundamentally flawed and we're changing now. If, if people are paying attention, we're changing now uh, slowly and, 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 and shifting our focus. But, you know, I, I probably went out a rabbit hole there, but I mean, just everything you were saying about this concept of, you know, I'm capable of these things. I'm capable of, you know, abusing drugs. I'm capable of murder. I'm capable of lying to my wife. I'm capable of all those things. And the acknowledgement of my capacity to engage in that behavior, it not only draws me closer to my fellow humans, it also helps me guard against my tendency to do it. Yeah. Once I understand my capacity, it's just like a fighter, a trained fighter. You're a trained fighter. I'm a trained fighter. Guess what? We fight less. Mm -hmm. Trained fighters fight less. There's no doubt about it. Once you understand your capacity for extreme violence, you don't need to be violent anymore. Yeah. You know, you, you're much more quicker to, to solve issues non-kinetically. Well, it's the same thing here. Once we understand how interconnected we are as human beings uh, through our capacity to do all of these things, we can transcend our need to objectify people. Yeah. Um, at least routinely objectify them. Um, so anyway, that's a lot. I'm throwing a lot at you there, but uh, you started it. So <laughs> my fault. No, that's, that's good. I mean, I, these are the nuggets that I, you know, I hope for um, in these, in these episodes, but I, you know, I can't help, but think about part of our leadership framework and, you know, I apologize to any avid listeners we have, cause I always bring uh, this component of our leadership framework up, but I think it's that important. Um, I just can't help but think about it as we've discussed so many different things um, already um, today. And, and part of our, our framework, uh, you know, we talk about uh, obviously seeing people, you know, we, we talk about cultivating soil and we use that analogy of the earth. But what we mean by cultivating soil as leaders is that we first need to be accountable. That's kind of the first layer. And then the second layer, you know, uh, fertilizing the soil is, is when we see people and then we, we, we take it even a step further to this deepest part of our soil, which is we call deeply seeing people, um, you know, deep further than, than the concept of seeing people as people. And my personal belief is the difference between the two, um, if we're going to make a difference would be that when I deeply see, I am choosing to see others as beloved and, and even love them and, and see them as worthy of that, where I might you know, be able to uh, see someone as a person and respond to a need and kind of carry on. But when I deeply see, I, I start to see them at a deeper level and I even start to live life at a deeper level. And, and so that's our, you know, that's our, our deepest part of our, our soil curriculum in our leadership framework. And we talk about, you know, we kind of built off of the Aspen Institute's um, Weaver's um, idea, if you've ever heard of that. And we built off of it and we talk about four steps of deeply seeing people. Um, and the first is to be rooted in. So to know your why, you know, understand why you exist and, and be rooted into it and be responsible for it. It doesn't matter if you're a police officer, a, a janitor, a, a lawyer, a, a doctor, it doesn't matter what you do in your career, be rooted into your why. Because 
it, it should be the same whether you're a doctor or a or a teacher or or a police officer or a or a janitor. The why should be consistent. So that's the first thing we talk about. Uh, you know, attributes that deeply seeing people have, and uh, the second is to um, uh, dare to explore social space, as we call it. Dare to dare to learn beyond what you're comfortable with learning. You know, dare to to be with people or to learn from people that maybe you normally wouldn't you know, choose to associate with or, or learn from and just dare to explore the social space that's out there so that we can understand people at a deeper level. And then the third, which I think we've talked about a little bit is, is being emotionally transparent. Know what, we, we talked about this when we were talking about accountability, know what holds you back and do something about it. That's kind of what we mean by that. It, we don't mean wear your emotions on your sleeve and be an emotional person all the time. We mean know what holds you back and do something about it. And then the fourth level, um, which I think is what we've been you know, speaking to just recently with uh, this idea of seeing that we're capable of 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 everything um, is use your suffering well. And the way we talk about that is the difference between, you know, not using your suffering well would be allowing the suffering that we experience because all of us experience suffering. We would allow it to break us, you know, to break us down versus using our suffering well, we allow it to break us open. Um, we become more more empathetic, um, we're able to see things that maybe we didn't see before, and and all of those steps. I don't just believe they help us see people deeply, but they help us live life at a more deep and meaningful level, um, which in turn allows us to see people at a in a more deep and, and meaningful way. And you know, when it comes to leadership, I think that that's that's imperative that we we can develop that skill to deeply see people. And as Chad would say, you know, Chad Ford, you know, deeply seeing is, is loving dangerously because it's not always easy to love. It's not always easy to see people, especially when they do wrong or, uh, when they're a challenge. Um, and that's, that's when the dangerous love is needed. That's when deeply seeing is needed the most. Um, so I couldn't help but think about that part of our framework as we've been discussing these principles, because I think it's so uh, relevant to some of the things we've been talking about. Um, but I wanted to share that. Um, with you, and I know we're coming short on time, which is a bummer because I want to keep talking to you. Uh, but I do want to get to um, your your podcast, you know, changing discourse and what the thinking was behind that. Um, perhaps how everything we've been discussing today somehow it, you know influences um, your why behind uh, changing discourse. You know what you're hoping to to accomplish with that, and 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 so on. So if you want to you know, have a stab at that, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. Well, um, first of all, I'm going to be thinking a lot about what you just laid out um, after we're off the air, just thinking a bit about, you know, those principles and the way that you're describing them. Um, I really like, I really like what you're doing there. I mean, I really like, I'm a visual person, so I really like that soil analogy. And I really like the idea that, that we're nurturing you know, this is a nurturing process, right? We're, we're tending to yeah. these things. I love that metaphor, if you will. Um, so I'm going to be thinking about that. I like the gardening approach to leadership. I think it's just a brilliant yeah. way of thinking about it. Um, so go back to changing discourse. Yeah. Well, I'm super excited about this. Like I never, I'd been approached to do podcasts before on several occasions, actually. Um, they said something like, you've got a face for radio. <laughs> I don't know if that made any sense. I, I thought it was a compliment. <laughs> But, um, but I'd always said no, because my time is so limited and I try to be disciplined with my time. I guard it tightly. And, um, 
I mean, it's the most important commodity we have. I'm just like your listeners right now. I mean, how much do I appreciate the fact they're taking time out of their lives, time they won't get back to listen to us yeah. chat about leadership, right? I appreciate it deeply, much more than they'll understand uh, based on, on my mere words. But this, this podcast thing, you know, Tanner Brock, my partner, he had he pitched it to me in a way that just, he just made me think we could actually help people. We could actually make some changes in the discourse and the dialogue we're having with each other. We just feel like people aren't talking to each other authentically anymore. Um, and we've got agendas, we've got hidden platforms, you know, we're, 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 we're more into manipulating than we are into understanding, right? Everybody wants to be interesting, but they're not caring so much about being interested. And, and that's really unfortunate, right? So the idea about changing discourse and my son, Christopher actually came up with the name. Uh, he's incredibly creative. And if you look at the graphic for the podcast, you'll see there's a little bit of a visual play. Uh, on the way that the changing discourse is, is described there, a little, little subtle thing that I think your, your listeners will definitely pick up on if they decide to, to look at that. Um, but the idea is that, you know, we, I think I'm having all these interesting discussions with some really great people, people that are much smarter than me, and I'm running right up against my ability to effectively process and understand everything I'm learning. And so the best way for me to do that is to create this community where we can kind of learn together. You know, we can exchange these ideas. So if I'm talking to you about something, uh, some deep leadership principle, uh, now we've got these people listening to us yeah. that they can, they can email us questions. They can, they can, you know, share clarity with us. They can correct us when we're wrong. They can help steer the conversation a bit virtually. Uh, and there's no limit to how many people can engage in that medium. So changing discourse, having a podcast, you know, the idea is we want to change the world. And the way that we change the world is through our discourse. We have, it's honest speech. Um, and, and, and so you hear, you know, what people are doing these podcasts. I've now become a guy who listens to podcasts. Uh, I wasn't before. Um, I've got a few that I've been following. It's I've, I'm, I'm learning things there. It's a great tool. And we wanted to kind of contribute to that, uh, to that pool of knowledge and, and also have some fun, man. I mean, just I, I, the couple people that we've interviewed so far, we've got, I think we're up to like we, the first few don't have guests. We kind of lay out the, you know, the, this is Chip and where he comes from type mm -hmm. thing. And then I did a bonus episode with Tanner uh, where I kind of turned the tables on him. But but Tanner's an extreme introvert. You'll probably hear this, by the way. <laughs> he's just an introverted guy. He's one of those guys that's always thinking. Yeah. But, you know, he's not as comfortable in the spotlight, as it were. And so, you know, he's not comfortable talking about himself. He'll talk about leadership all day. But but like he doesn't like to put the spotlight on him as yeah. a person. So I flipped those tables on him and interviewed him. But the other guests that we've had on, um, they're so cool and interesting. And it's so neat to, to think about the knowledge they have And my job. And I've done a really mediocre job at it thus far, but I'm going to get better is to help mine their experience for practical takeaways that the listeners can use to improve their lives, yeah. their leadership. Right. Um, so that's why with the podcast, I can't do what I want to do alone. I don't have enough bandwidth, but I know that we can resource all of these other folks, all these other perspectives through this medium and we can bring all of that knowledge to bear on a problem. I really don't think there's anything we can't solve, Chris. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, man. I think, I think the solution to most of our problems is across the table, figuratively, right? They're the person that's across the table. Um, it might be across the political aisle. It might be, you know, down the street. It might be, you know, wherever. But usually the solution's right there. And but unlocking that, you know, 
potential is a is a challenge, um, but it's a worthwhile one. You know, if we're going to work hard in life, <laughs> we might as well work hard in life to do that. Um, and so we're all going to go to work every day. We're all going to work hard and do our best to to provide for ourselves and our and our families and to survive and live. Um, and if we're able to, you know, if we're able to have basic needs taken care of, you know, we might as well work for, for, uh, you know, a better world. And, and I love the, I love the title changing discourse. I actually teach, a uh, a class, uh, program out in Hawaii through Chad's program. I teach a, a class in the peace building department. Um, it's called uh, storytelling in, you know, in conflict and peace building, the power that stories have. And so at the beginning of the class, you know, I, I dive deep into the idea of narrative and we, we talk about narrative and discourse and, and how, you know, the, the discourse is, is, is what controls, right? And, and so the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories we tell others can change the narrative. They can change the discourse. And, uh, and so I, I love the title. It gets me thinking about just the power, um, that, that lies within, um, the idea and more so in the application. So I love that you're, you're doing that. Um, and I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to continue to, to be a listener, um, uh, of that podcast as well. So yeah, I was, I was fascinated. My, when I mentioned Chris, you know, my son being so creative, I mean, he's, he's just, I just mentioned, we're trying to do a podcast and he just asked me, well, what do you want to do? And I told him and he goes, well, let me think about it. And he's just driving home from dinner. And he like texts <laughs> me when he gets home. I think this is it. And then he texts like a graphic and we're like, okay. And then I, Tanner brought in the owl and the owl has some symbolic meaning for us. He brought in the owl on the back end, but yeah, Chris is the kind of guy, man. I mean, my, I'm so proud of my sons. Chris is the kind of guy like this is like, he'll go to a movie. He, he, he won't like how the movie ends. He'll go home and rewrite the whole script and he'll bind it up and he'll put it on his shelf. He'll rewrite the script with a different ending. Huh. I know. And, and when you, I mean, it, I mean, it's amazing that he does this in his quote unquote spare time. But I mean, it's, he's got like several, like, I wish he would like send them to somebody. I mean, yeah. he's a, he's a brilliant writer mm -hmm. and um, his endings are always better than the endings. You know, like, he took a real issue with game of Thrones, which I know that might be a, <laughs> a, that might be a hot topic for some people, but he was a big game of Thrones fan. And like they had watch parties at his house and then he just did not like how that wrapped up. Like he thought, man, they really dropped the ball in the wrap up. And, uh, I, you know, I was like, well, you know, what are you going to do about it? He goes, well, I'm going to rewrite it. He did. <laughs> I mean, he did. So, I mean, that's Chris, right? He's super creative, but, uh, yeah, another, another brilliant Chris in my life. Just what I needed. <laughs> I love that. Thanks for sharing. Um, to close, we're, we're just a little over an hour. So I want to respect your, your time. Um, you know, I usually ask, uh, our guests to, to share, you know, um, I have a few questions, you know, uh, and I pick one, whether you share, you know, if you had, if you had all the leaders in the world, what would you say to them? Or, you know, um, who's been a leader in your life that you've admired? And we've already discussed so much of, of those um, components, but one thing that's been on my mind since we started, and we talked about this before, was the three things that you shared back in that, that speech that you gave a few years ago that I've referenced a few times. You shared three things that stick with me. I often bring those up with leaders. I've brought them up and I brought them up in other episodes. I think they're very important. Um, and I think they sum up, uh, leadership really well. And those three things that you shared, you know, in the speech and you spent a whole speech talking about these. So by no means do I expect you to address them at the level that you did there and in, in your final couple of minutes, but 
you know, you talked about three components of leadership that leaders should do. One is to see people. The second is to tell the truth. And the third was to be transparent. Um, so I'd love to hear your, you know, your final thoughts on that uh, as we wrap up. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, and again, it's so funny that you brought it up because as you said, I didn't remember, you know, saying those things in the speech, you know, you brought it up and think, okay, yeah, we did talk about that. But it wasn't like, you know, it's something that's so funny, you know, once you've done so many of these things and you've interacted with so many people, how you can kind of lose sense of, um, you know, what you've covered. But so, yeah, well, obviously the see people thing is the fundamental thing. That's the most important thing, right? Mm -hmm. If, if I look at the people that I lead as pieces on a chessboard, if I objectify them and see them only as a means to an end, rather than what they actually are, which, which is an end in and of themselves, um, if, if that's what I do, it doesn't matter what kind of behaviors I engage in or how brilliant I am or how charming I am or how masterful I am at strategizing. They're going to sniff out how I actually regard them. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I objectify them is going to undermine my efforts at a real foundational level. So that idea of seeing people is just simply honoring the fact that every person you're dealing with on your team and really anywhere is a person that has things that they care deeply for. They have things they need to accomplish. They have things that keep them up at night. They're a person just like you at some fundamental level of analysis. And you have to recognize that core truth. If you don't recognize that, it doesn't matter what you stack on top of it. You know, it doesn't matter how cool your tactics are or what behaviors you prescribe. So that's that's the reality. That's the toughest part. And I mean, you and I both know that, right? We struggle with it every day. And the idea is that you're never, you never arrive. You never get to a point where you're always seeing people. You're constantly being tugged back into that box, as Arbiter would say, that inward mindset. Being outward in your mindset is it's just a journey, not a destination. And the only thing you do is you you learn more quickly to recognize the red flags of when you're slipping. I think you indicated something that effect up front at the top of our talk. Um, and then and then tell the truth. Look, people have a capacity to handle the truth. It doesn't matter how bad things are. Don't candy coat it. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't think you're protecting people. Um, if you don't know, say you don't know. Don't pretend to be something you're not. You know, tell people honestly what's going on. You want to share with them openly the truth as you understand it and trust them to be able to handle it. And, you know, I think a lot of times leaders, uh, I know I can't speak for everyone, but for me, uh, in my the early parts of my leadership journey, I was more concerned about being perceived as a good leader than I was about being a good leader. You know, I wanted to be seen as a good leader. So I thought knowledge was power and I protected knowledge. I didn't share it. I kept it to myself. If I knew something, someone else didn't know that I had leverage Mm -hmm. and that's how I approached it. And what I've learned is I I advocate the opposite, you know, you know, be honest, tell the truth, um, you know, walk your talk. I mean, you know, you, you, you have to, to live by the principles that you espouse, that's key, right? And just on that last point of, of transparency, it kind of bleeds into that. It's just being completely open and vulnerable with people. I mean, I have a philosophy that I, I call radical inclusion. And I, I picked that up also probably from a book, I think of the same title, uh, or at least I extrapolated some of what we do from that book uh, and other books like it. Um, but I have no closed door meetings. Now I understand this is not possible in every culture, But the only closed door meetings I have are meetings around personnel issues. If it's an issue about someone's health or a disciplinary issue um, or an evaluation, those things are private. 
But every other meeting we have, even all of our weekly leadership team meetings are open to any member of the team from the newest member to the most senior. And you may not have a speaking part if you're not on the agenda, but you're absolutely welcome to come and listen. You're absolutely welcome to email questions or to email challenges to anyone on the team. So I, I, I know in that leader, you know, it's like everybody likes sausage. No one likes to see how it's made. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I'm perfectly willing to let you see what's happening behind the scenes, behind the curtain. This is our process. It's not perfect. It's flawed. I will make mistakes and missteps and have to apologize as your leader. I'm going to share that vulnerability with you transparently. I want you to understand that, you know, this is how things work. There aren't any secrets here. You know, if I get an email, um, I'm not, I'm not cleaning that thread up before I share it with you. You're going to get the whole thing, maybe more than you wanted. And uh, I think that's incredibly important. I think it builds all kinds of trust. Um, I think it also invites all kinds of feedback that you wouldn't normally get. Some of the people that are in the corners of your organization that are often head down in their work and not really recognized. Uh, because they're, 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 maybe they're in a technical space, right? They're a support yeah. team. Well, with this type of philosophy, some of those people have great ideas that never get aired. They get aired in this type of environment. Their voices are heard in this type of environment. So transparency, radical inclusion, you know, being open with people, uh, valuing their contributions, helping them feel valued is so, so important. So that kind of puts a bow on those, those three things that I think I probably droned on for at least an hour about in the speech that you were talking about, but that's the idea. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. Um, definitely provides more context for folks. Um, and I still believe, uh, you know, that those three components are, are vital in, in leadership. Um, I, uh, I, I have received some answers to some, some things that have been on my mind today, just, uh, learning from you and, 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 uh, listening to you. So I, I sure appreciate your time. Um, you've helped me today. Um, and I know that, uh, our listeners for those of the listeners that we have are, are going to benefit greatly from this. So I, I appreciate you. I appreciate your time. Um, I truly do uh, admire you and, um, and I, I'm very grateful for the, the friendship that we have. So even if it's, you know, a few times a year that we actually even get to connect, I am grateful for those moments. Um, and uh, I, I hope that you remain safe and, and healthy. So there's a lot of, a lot of people that you can impact. So I, I hope that you stay healthy and strong and, and uh, can keep doing what you're doing. Well, thank you very much, Chris. And, you know, right back at you. Um, you know, I just appreciate you, you inviting me on and trusting me to, I know this means a lot to you, what you're doing um, and trusting me with your, with, with the message, right. Um, helping to, to kind of propel that message forward. And of course, I mean, you could edit this out, right? You could not even air this, right? Yeah. Like that's your, <laughs> you, you kind of, you kind of could write, this may not even see the light of day, but it, <laughs> but if it does, <laughs> if it does do know that this is, this has meant a lot to me too. And I really appreciate you, uh, you know, you having me on. So um, I look forward to our future conversations. Awesome. I do too. So we'll definitely talk more. All right, brother. Well, uh, I'll let you go, but uh, have a great uh, rest of your day and, and good holidays with your family this month. Absolutely. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care, Chip. Bye. Bye. All right. I was fed today. Um, like I mentioned, Chip is a phenomenal person, great leader, great example uh, of so many different things. 
So hopefully all of you listeners uh, have learned as much as I have today and are walking away uh, more hopeful, um, feeling more confident that uh, we can change and we can be better. Uh, And hopefully you found some answers to some things that have been on your mind. Um, I ask, you know, the question uh, to all of you in how we end ended um, as leaders, are you seeing people? as often as you need to be, which should be most of the time. Um, are you telling the truth? Uh, and are you being transparent? Things to think about as, as leaders and as just people in general. But that's that's our show for the day. I appreciate all of you listeners. Uh, please share and, and uh, like this episode. And until next time, stay safe. Talk to you later.